Part One, Chapter One of the Fur Country. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fur Country by Jules Verne, Part One, Chapter One. Aswari at Fort Reliance. On the evening of the seventeenth March, eighteen fifty nine, Captain Craventy gave a fete at Fort Reliance. Our readers must not at once imagine a grand entertainment, such as a court ball or a musical soiree, with a fine orchestra. Captain Craventy's reception was a very simple affair, yet he had spared no pains to give it eclat. In fact, under the auspices of Corporal Joliffe, the large room on the ground floor was completely transformed. The rough walls, constructed of roughly hewn trunks of trees, piled up horizontally, were still visible, it is true, but their nakedness was disguised by arms and armor borrowed from the arsenal of the fort, and by an English tent at each corner of the room. Two lamps, suspended by chains like chandeliers, and provided with tin reflectors, relieved the gloomy appearance of the blackened beams of the ceiling, and sufficiently illuminated the misty atmosphere of the room. The narrow windows, some of them mere loopholes, were so encrusted with hoar-frost that it was impossible to look through them. But two or three pieces of red bunting, tastily arranged about them, challenged the admiration of all who entered. The floor, of rough joists of wood, laid parallel with each other, had been carefully swept by Corporal Joliffe. No sofas, chairs, or other modern furniture impeded the free circulation of the guests. Wooden benches, half fixed against the walls, huge blocks of wood, cut with the axe, and two tables with clumsy legs, were all the appliances of luxury the saloon could boast of. But the partition wall, with a narrow door leading into the next room, was decorated in a style alike costly and picturesque. From the beams hung magnificent firs, admirably arranged, the equal of which, could not be seen in the more favoured regions of Regent Street or the perspective Nooski. It seemed as if the whole fauna of the ice-bound north were here represented by their finest skins. The eye wandered from the furs of wolves, grey bears, polar bears, otters, wolverines, beavers, muskrats, water-polecats, ear-mines, and silver foxes, and above this display was an inscription in brilliantly coloured and artistically shaped cardboard, the motto of the world-famous Hudson's Bay Company, Propel Qutem. Really, Corporal Joliffe, you have surpassed yourself, said Captain Craventy to his subordinate. I think I have, replied the corporal, but honour to whom honour is due. Mrs. Joliffe deserves part of your commendation. She assisted me in everything. A wonderful woman, Corporal. Her equal is not to be found, Captain. An immense brick and earthenware stove occupied the centre of the room, with a huge iron pipe passing from it through the ceiling, and conducting the dense black smoke into the outer air. This stove contained a roaring fire, constantly fed with fresh shovelfuls of coal by the stoker, an old soldier specially appointed to the service. Now and then a gust of wind drove back a volume of smoke into the room, dimming the brightness of the lamps, and adding fresh blackness to the beams of the ceiling, whilst tongues of flames shot forth from the stove. 
but the guests of Fort Reliance thought little of this slight inconvenience. The stove warmed them, and they could not pay too dearly for its cheering heat. So terribly cold was it outside in the cutting north wind. The storm could be heard raging without. The snow fell fast, becoming rapidly solid and coating the already frosted window panes with fresh ice. The whistling wind made its way through the cracks and chinks of the doors and windows, and occasionally the rattling noise drowned every other sound. Presently an awful silence ensued. Nature seemed to be taking a breath. But suddenly the squall recommenced with terrific fury. The house was shaken to its foundations. The planks cracked. The beams groaned. A stranger, less accustomed than the habitués of the fort, to the war of the elements, would have asked if the end of the world were come. But, with two exceptions, Captain Craventy's guests troubled themselves little about the weather, and if they had been outside they would have felt no more fear than the stormy petrels disporting themselves in the midst of the tempest. Two only of the assembled company did not belong to the ordinary society of the neighbourhood. Two women, who we shall introduce when we have enumerated Captain Creventy's other guests, these were Lieutenant Jasper Hobson, Sergeant Long, Corporal Joliffe, and his bright, active Canadian wife, a certain MacNab and his wife, both Scotch, John Ray, married to an Indian woman of the country, and some sixty soldiers or employees of the Hudson's Bay Company. The neighbouring forts also furnished their contingent of guests, for in these remote lands people look upon each other as neighbours, although their homes may be a hundred miles apart. A good many employees or traders came from Fort Providence or Fort Resolution, of the great Slave Lake district, and even from Fort Chippeway and Fort Laird, further south. A rare break like this in the monotony of their secluded lives, in these hyperborean regions, was joyfully welcomed by all the exiles, and even a few Indian chiefs, about a dozen, had accepted Captain Creventy's invitation. They were not, however, accompanied by their wives, the luckless squaws being still looked upon as little better than slaves. The presence of these natives is accounted for by the fact that they are in constant intercourse with the traders and supply the greater number of furs which pass through the hands of the Hudson's Bay Company, in exchange for other commodities. They are mostly Chippewa Indians, well-grown men with hardy constitutions. Their complexions are of the peculiar reddish-black colour, always ascribed in Europe to the evil spirits of fairyland. They wear very picturesque cloaks of skins and mantles of fur with a head-dress of eagle's feathers spread out like a lady's fan, and quivering with every motion of their thick black hair. Such was the company to whom the captain was doing the honours of Fort Reliance. There was no dancing for want of music, but the buffet admirably supplied the want of the hired musicians of the European balls. On the table rose a pyramidal pudding made by Mrs. Joliffe's own hands. It was an immense truncated cone, composed of flour, fat, reindeer venison, and musk beef. The eggs, milk, and citron prescribed in recipe books were, it is true, wanting, but their absence was atoned for by its huge proportions. Mrs. Joliffe served out slice after slice with liberal hands, yet there remained enough and to spare. Piles of sandwiches also figured on the table, 
in which ship-biscuits took the place of thin slices of English bread and butter, and dainty morsels of corned beef that of the ham, and stuffed veal of the old world. The sharp teeth of the Chippeway Indians made short work of the tough biscuits, and for drink there was plenty of whisky and gin handed round in little pewter pots, not to speak of a great bowl of punch which was to close the entertainment, and of which the Indians talked long afterwards in their wigwams. Endless were the compliments paid to the Joliffes that evening, but they deserved them. How zealously they waited on the guests, with what easy grace they distributed the refreshments. They did not need prompting, they anticipated the wishes of each one. The sandwiches were succeeded by slices of the inexhaustible pudding, the pudding by glasses of gin or whisky. No, thank you, Mr. Joliffe. You are too good, Corporal, but let me have time to breathe. Mrs. Joliffe, I assure you, I can eat no more. Corporal Joliffe, I am at your mercy. No more, Mrs. Joliffe, no more, thank you. Such were the replies met with on every side by the zealous pair, but their powers of persuasion were such that the most reluctant yielded in the end. The quantities of food and drink consumed were really enormous. The hubbub of conversation increased. The soldiery and employees became excited. Here the talk was of hunting, there of trade. What plans were laid for next season? The entire fauna of the Arctic regions would scarcely supply game enough for these enterprising hunters. They already saw bears, foxes, and musk-oxen falling beneath their bullets, and polecats by hundreds caught in their traps. Their imagination pictured the costly furs piled up in the magazines of the company, which was this year to realize hitherto unheard-of profits, and whilst the spirits thus freely circulated inflamed the imagination of the Europeans, the large doses of Captain Craventy's fire-water imbibed by the Indians had an opposite effect. Too proud to show admiration, too cautious to make promises, the taciturn chiefs listened gravely and silently to the babble of voices around them. The captain, enjoying the hurly-burly, and pleased to see the poor people, brought back, as it were, to the civilized world, enjoying themselves so thoroughly, was here, there, and everywhere, answering all inquiries about the fete with the words, Ask Joliffe, ask Joliffe. And they asked Joliffe, who had a gracious word for everybody. Some of those employed in the garrison and civil service of Fort Reliance must here receive a few words of special notice for they were presently to go through experiences of a most terrible nature, which no human perspicacity could possibly have foreseen. Amongst others we must name Lieutenant Jasper Hobson, Sergeant Long, Corporal and Mrs. Joliffe, and the two foreign women already alluded to, in whose honour Captain Craventy's fete was given. Jasper Hobson was a man of forty years of age. He was short and slight, with little muscular power, but a force of will which carried him successfully through all trials, and enabled him to rise superior to adverse circumstances. He was a child of the company. His father, Major Hobson, an Irishman from Dublin, who had now been dead for some time, lived for many years at Fort Assiniboine with his wife. There Jasper Hobson was born. His childhood and youth were spent at the foot of the Rocky Mountains. His father brought him up strictly and he became a man in self-control and courage whilst yet a boy in years. 
Jasper Hobson was no mere hunter, but a soldier, a brave and intelligent officer. During the struggles in Oregon of the Hudson's Bay Company, with the rival companies of the Union, he distinguished himself by his zeal and intrepidity, and rapidly rose to the rank of lieutenant. His well-known merit led to his appointment to the command of an expedition to the north, the aim of which was to explore the northern shores of the Great Bear Lake, and to found a fort on the confines of the American continent. Jasper Hobson was to set out on his journey early in April. If the lieutenant was the type of good officer, Sergeant Long was that of a good soldier. He was a man of fifty years of age, with a rough beard that looked as if it were made of coconut fibre, constitutionally brave, and disposed to obey rather than to command. He had no ambition but to obey the orders he received, never questioning them, however strange they might appear, never reasoning for himself when on duty for the company, a true machine in uniform, but a perfect machine, never wearing out, ever on the march, yet never showing signs of fatigue. Perhaps Sergeant Long was rather hard upon his men, as he was upon himself. He would not tolerate the slightest infraction of discipline, and mercilessly ordered men into confinement for the slightest neglect, while he himself had never been reprimanded. In a word, he was a man born to obey, and this self-annihilation suited his passive temperament. Men such as he are the materials of which a formidable army is formed." They are the arms of the service, obeying a single head. Is not this the only really powerful organization? The two types of fabulous mythology, Briareus with a hundred arms, and Hydra with a hundred heads, well represented the two kinds of armies, and in a conflict between them, which would be victorious? Briareus without a doubt. We have already made acquaintance with Corporal Joliffe, he was the busy bee of the party, but it was pleasant to hear him humming. He would have made a better major-domo than a soldier, and he was himself aware of this, so he called himself the corporal in charge of details. But he would have lost himself a hundred times amongst these details, had not little Mrs. Joliffe guided him with a firm hand. So it came to pass that Corporal Joliffe obeyed his wife without owning it, doubtless thinking to himself, like the philosopher Sancho, a woman's advice is no such great thing, but he must be a fool who does not listen to it. It is now time to say a few words of the two foreign women already alluded to more than once. They were both about forty years old, and one of them well deserved to take first rank amongst celebrated female travellers. The name of Paulina Barnett, the rival of Pfeiffer's Tinnis and Hamaris of Hull, has been several times honourably mentioned at the meetings of the Royal Geographical Society. In her journeys up the Brahmaputra, as far as the mountains of Tibet, crossed an unknown corner of New Holland, from Swan Bay to the Gulf of Carpentaria. Paulina Barnett had given proof of the qualities of a great traveller. She had been a widow for fifteen years, and her passion for travelling had led her constantly to explore new lands. She was tall, and her face, framed in long braids of hair, already touched with white, was full of energy. She was near-sighted, and a double eyeglass rested on her long, straight nose, with its mobile nostrils. We must confess that her walk 
was somewhat masculine, and her whole appearance was suggestive of moral power rather than of female grace. She was an Englishwoman from Yorkshire, possessed of some fortune, the greater part of which was expended in adventurous expeditions, and some new scheme of exploration had now brought her to Fort Reliance. Having crossed the equinoctial regions, she was doubtless anxious to penetrate to the extreme limits of the Hyperborean. Her presence at the fort was an event. The governor of the company had given her a special letter of recommendation to Captain Creventy, according to which the latter was to do all in his power to forward the design of the celebrated traveller to reach the borders of the Arctic Ocean, a grand enterprise, to follow in the steps of Hearn, Mackenzie, Ray, Franklin, and others. What fatigues, what trials, what dangers would have to be gone through in the conflict with the terrible elements of the polar climate? How could a woman dare to venture where so many explorers have drawn back or perished? But the stranger, now shut up in Fort Reliance, was no ordinary woman. She was Paulina Barnett, a laureate of the Royal Society. We must add that the celebrated traveller was accompanied by a servant named Madge. This faithful creature was not merely a servant, but a devoted and courageous friend, who lived only for her mistress, a Scotchwoman of the old type, whom a Caleb might have married without loss of dignity. Madge was about five years older than Mrs. Barnett, and was tall and strongly built. The two were on the most intimate terms. Paulina looked upon Madge as an elder sister, and Madge treated Paulina as her daughter. It was in honour of Paulina Barnett that Captain Creventy was this evening treating his employees and the Chippewa Indians. In fact, the lady traveller was to join the expedition of Jasper Hobson for the exploration of the north. It was for Paulina Barnett that the large saloon of the factory resounded with joyful hurrahs, and it was no wonder that the stove consumed a hundred weight of cold on this memorable evening, for the cold outside was twenty-four degrees Fahrenheit below zero, and Fort Reliance is situated in sixty-one degrees forty-seven minutes north latitude, at least four degrees from the polar circle. End of chapter 1